Ladies and gentlemen, it's Josh and Tom devour the world. Yum, 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 yum. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Josh Battenhorst. And I am your other host, Tom Chalmers. And we are here with uh, a man who's going to be here in Asheville uh, tomorrow, April the 7th at One World, One World Brewing, uh, bringing the party, Mike Dillon of the Mike Dillon Band, also Mike Dillon and the Punkadelics, and also all, all sorts of iterations of Mike Dillon. And, uh, and uh, welcome to the podcast, Mike. How y'all doing? Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> good morning good morning yeah i'm on tour i'm in a hotel room What's sweet this? where's the puppy you just got done walking the dog yeah here he is here's the puppy come on puppy he's curled up but there he is he weighs like <laughs> oh there he is his name is beignet <laughs> so it, okay so i've been taking in a lot of your your latest stuff and uh his name is beignet is he the psilocybin donut or is there is there a different beignet that you had in mind because there, oh, he, he is the psilocybin he is the psilocybin donut and i'll tell you that story right now <laughs> so there's this band in um louisiana that i was recording with this summer in the uh height of when I was making all my records I went down took a break from my thing and played with this band called the Iceman Special and um, my wife went down with me and hung out and their studios out in the middle of Oakdale, Louisiana which is totally like about three hours away from New Orleans put my headphones in can y'all hear me? I can still hear you yes uh-huh. okay great alright so and and she's like, she got some mushrooms or something. She's like, I'm going to trip and have a good time. And I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, there's poison ivy and it's, uh, it's 110 degrees out here. We're making a record. You sure you'll be cool? Being like overprotective. And she's looking at me like I'm stupid. So she's like, just says, okay, yeah, maybe you're right. So she said, so I'm in the studio recording and then later that day I see her and she's all smiling and I didn't even realize why she was so happy. You know, she had um, taken like an, I guess like a, a mega dose of mushrooms and apparently the, the five pound beignet started talking to her, giving her the meaning of life. So <laughs> uh, she said he, he broke down like the way dogs don't like, you know, they don't, um, they don't, they don't think in time, you know, they're not either happy or sad. They just feel exactly what we're feeling, all this stuff. This is in the song. And I'm like, oh, cool. You know, like, sounds like plausible to me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I had the same conversation with my truck in like 2003 <laughs> after the concert. Like, I, I, I had a Ford F-150 that was red. And me and that truck had a really good heart to heart uh, about uh, just, you know, how exactly how trucks like live in the world as well. And uh, and they're like, you got to take care of us. We're we're living creatures just like everything else you see. And it's like, uh, yeah, so you never look at it. I've never looked at a vehicle the same way uh, since. <laughs> yeah. No Norman Mailer wrote about that in one of his books about space and like the whole like 
concept that like machines are actual living beings with souls and you got to nurture them. And I've thought about that with my touring van from time to time, you know, like I really got to like, you know, it's not, not just changing the oil, you're feeding it, you know, you're nurturing it. So it's strange. And like, you know, um, I've got a truck now that, uh, was used to be my daily driver and, um, was really having a lot of transmission issues as I was driving it every day. And then, um, so I got a, a different vehicle and just stopped driving it every day. And it's kind of weird. Like, I mean, I, I know that mechanically this isn't possible that, the, but the transmission does, it works fairly fine now. Like, I don't know, it's just a matter of like, maybe it's just that I don't give it enough opportunities to act up on me. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, maybe it just, it just was getting old and needed a little bit of, it couldn't, it couldn't be that couldn't do the same thing. It needed to move into like a, it still has a role in the world, but maybe it's not like an everyday sort of role. I don't know, you know? Yeah, precisely. Maybe it just needed some Lucas B&B uh, transmission, like. I don't know. I don't know. So uh, uh, I will say uh, attachment to vehicles can be strong. I've probably <laughs> wept more strongly when, uh, you know, finding a, a, a pet by the side of the road that had been hit uh, or we were involved in, in a, a head on uh car crash not our fault and then i basically had to go to the wrecking yard where it was a towed to to sort of you know gather the things that were still inside the car uh and i was i was a wreck i was thanking yeah. it for all that it had done for us you know and again that car absorbed the blow if that car was not the solid sedan that it was we would not be here so i just remember That's having totally true a, a full like thank you gave yourself for us and you know thank you for getting me cross country but like i just it was hemingway esque it should have rained at that moment um for yeah it to yeah be, be truly perfect for that but yeah in, in a way that i have lost friends and family members and i was sad but uh, not that way I, I did not have a chance to sort of you know, break down and just like hug their hood and just you know, thank you yeah. what kind of car was it was it a volvo it was a hyundai sonata Wow, so the Sonata can take a head on. It can. Yeah, first third of that car completely accordioned. The, the remaining two thirds, fine. Unfortunately, you do need the first third of the car to. Yeah. Be, <laughs> so we did have to say goodbye. First third. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Mike, Mike Dillon band with us here. Again, he's going to be uh, at One World Brewing West to, uh, tomorrow, Wednesday. If you're hearing this on Wednesday, then that's tonight, and you might you better just get your ticket now because Mike, I I have to say like there are uh, very few concerts that are like well not very few but because I, I I like to go to see a lot of music, but when you're in town, man, if there is any possible way, I do not miss it because you do. You, I I was talking to my friend, uh, we we had him on the podcast, our friend Alex Bradley, who is a trumpet player for Empire Strikes Brass. And, he, he played um, with you at the Fung Jam one time, and he was like, man, that guy just, I don't, he just brings the party. And I, and I, I think of you as like a fire breather. Like, I, th th there's something <sighs> about, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's something about like the way that you just beat on, is it a marimba? Is it a vibraphone? What, what, what is the instrument that you call? What is it that you play? Tell, tell yeah, me. I, I have a vibraphone. Okay, yeah. It is mostly used in classical and jazz worlds and as well as like, you know, drum corps, marching band. And mine is a super tough one that was sort of designed for both concert, but the strength to be in a 
drum kit. Uh-huh. And um, I outfitted it with the K&K pickup system. Each bar has a ceramic piezo pickup. So I can run it through my pedals and an amp in the effort to make it sound like Jay Mascus or Nels Klein or Thurston Moore or any of my other, you know, guitar, Neil Young guitar heroes. Yeah. Because I, instead of playing guitar, I ended up being a drummer and I was like, Ooh, I want to play a snare drum or drum set. And somehow they're like, no, you're no good on those instruments, but you're pretty good on that xylophone go play the xylophone <laughs> so you know i'm one of the kids that was like oh i'm in the pit uh, well this is sort of cool i get to hang out with the with the ladies you know because yeah. you know it's me and one other dude and all ladies in the pit when i was at university of north texas and um you know it's sort of weird it was just like this thing i could always do and i loved it because it was melodic and it was playing rhythm yeah, using yeah. sticks but mallets you know sticks with yarn on the end of them and um for years i did just focus on hand percussion and timbales and and, and drum set of course because i do play drum set but i just sort of found what a concept that i wanted to create and develop which is playing vibes in, in, in a rock and roll situation and of course, growing up with a heavy dose of Frank Zappa in my life all the time and Rush and all the other prog rock bands, they, those bands, you know, in the late seventies and the early eighties that I was into that first wave of like fusion or whatever you want to call it. Um, those guys totally influenced me. Yeah. And the, the lady, Ruth Underwood on Marimba, and then my friend Ed Mann, who took over Zappa's band after Ruth left, um, you know, those were my heroes. So I, I didn't even realize it. Like then one day I was like, wow, I'm going to play this vibraphone in it and be really obnoxious with it and annoy people. And, <laughs> and I've been having a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> well, and you're also like, I mean, just an extreme road warrior. I'm always impressed by the way uh, our show is about devouring. It's not about, you know, things that you've been eating, you've been drinking, consuming, yeah. consuming you know, what do you consume? And I got to say, man, you, you're, you consume the road as much as anybody that I've, I've ever seen. Like you just a real road warrior. I run a, in my, you know, mainstream life, a, a touring theater company. And I'm always nice. amazed by just how, uh, how those actors out on the road just go place to place to place with long drives in between. And just like, you know, nail it and uh so i just how do you keep yourself going out there when you're in the midst of uh being a road warrior like that well i do think there was a high level of insanity for 30 years prior to the pandemic shutting us all down because yeah. all of a sudden i was like uh what am i going to do with myself <laughs> and i insanely <laughs> made three records i was just like ah, i don't know what to do so i had to stay in motion yeah, but it's really funny to be back on the road. I was on Interstate 85 yesterday, and I'm just like, wow, the roads are insane these days, you know. And I'm out of practice, so <laughs> I'm just like, all right, you know. I mean, I still have managed to travel a bit during yeah. the, the pandemic. I, I I've been going between Kansas City and New Orleans, uh -huh. but I, I I think. 
it's just like the actors you talked about in the theater company. It's just the love of performing, the love of playing that you endure, like really stinky truck stops. I mean, masks are good for that. You know, you don't have to smell <laughs> trucker Bob devouring the toilet, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or just back to back traffic when there's construction everywhere or, or, or you're like sitting for 35 minutes in a wreck. I mean, and, and then there's beautiful moments too, where you just find an open highway and you're just looking at everything. You're so grateful to be traveling and, and seeing the beauty. I mean, there still are highways in America you can get some solitude in. Yeah. And, and that's what I look. I know when I first started touring back in the 90s, there wasn't near, I mean, I'm talking well, 80s actually, is pre-NAFTA. So our whole manufacturing you know, supply chain wasn't built around these these uh, 18 wheeler dragons that go down the road, just huffing fire and going, ah, and they don't give a fuck about, well, a lot of them do drive well, but there are several of them, as we all know, right? Yeah. that just seem to be, and then nowadays everyone's driving with their cell phones. Yeah. 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 I mean, yesterday we we're just like, uh, we're in construction, you know, that part of the road between y'all live in Asheville. So between Greenville and like Charlotte, uh-huh. that, like before you get up to North Carolina, it, it's just been construction for 30 years now or whatever. Right, yeah. And I'm just like, well, well, don't look at the phone. We're like all like going 70 <laughs> and like we're bumper to bumper. Well, you know, that's one of the things though, is like where we're at in societies, there's just, they found, I mean, I think people that their job is to get your attention have found that that machine, uh, you know, we're just we were just talking about how machines have a life of their own, but that specific machine also has a memory of its own and can remember the things that you say and the things that you have searched and like so it's really good at getting your attention. Like yeah, it's brilliantly so. Like I mean, it is. It's it's almost as good as a dog. I mean, our my dogs like will not let if I haven't walked them or I haven't uh, fed them or if they need water, they're very good at coming and saying, "Hey, you're not paying attention to something very important right now." And my phone is very good at saying, you're not paying attention to something is that is not important at all, but you're not paying attention to it. So can I get your attention? Can I, can I, can I, can I all the time, you know? Yeah. Do you think the phone is sort of like what, I don't know if you read an infinite jest, but you know, the entertainment that David Foster Wallace talks about, it's almost like the phone and the algorithm has become, it was something he predicted when he wrote that book, you know? I haven't read place. that book, although it's been on my list for a long, long time. Tom, are you a, a, a David Foster Wallace uh, guy? Have you read that one? Uh, I pointed my face at the really long book that he wrote, but I did read uh, his short <laughs> stories, which are awesome. They're great. The short great, stories. Great one about a tennis player who sort of just focuses on like the geometry of things and really frustrates the players on the other side who are like, you're not even playing tennis. You're doing formulas in your head and you're still winning. Um, yeah, uh, but again, I'm, I'm, I admit, I'm a big fan of the short story and that I like to get things done. So I'm like, Hey, 13 pages. I read something, you know, instead yeah. of, Oh my God, this just book just keeps going. Um, it took me five years to read that book yeah. and I finished it during the pandemic and it was literally like, Oh, okay, I'm going to read two pages today <laughs> and look up every word in the fucking book because you have to. <laughs> and you're like, uh, I read it on my computer because you can just point at the computer and then it'll bring up the word meaning above it. <laughs> That's you awesome. Know. 
Well, and you know, so talking about length of things, I mean, um, I just got through uh, one of the things that I devoured this last week was the a documentary about the Stooges, and oh uh, got and uh, one of the things that I thought I found really insightful. So also during the pandemic, I got involved with a songwriting group where your job is every week, no matter they send you a theme, no matter what, every week you got to get a song out there, just right? Like, you know, whether it's you know whether it's some 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 weeks I'll admit it's just lyrics. Some weeks it may just be like, I got a riff, but most of the time I'm able to like throw a song out. And uh, so I was really interested when Iggy got to talking about his songwriting style. He's like, he said, you know, I never wanted to be Bob Dylan. I don't tell stories in my songs. He's like, I, I have a, a limit of 25 words in the English language. And I may repeat some of them in my song, but, I try, <laughs> but if, I can get the, if I can get the feeling out in 25 words, then I've got that's 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 his goal as a songwriter, and I just found that to be kind of like really just such an interesting process for one thing because you know that, that's way before Twitter and way much more constricted than Twitter, uh, you know. But also, I just thought that's it, it, was, it was just really kind of eye opening for for me. And uh, yeah, your process because man, three albums in a year is a is a that's a lot of in the studio time. And also all three albums have a different feeling. You've got, um, you know, you got 1918, which is got a just, I mean, I, I would say it's pandemic heavy and in, in kind of like the way that like, it's a lot, there's a lot of stuff in there about COVID. Um, there's some funny stuff in there too, which I've always appreciated about your music too. It's got a little bit of a sense of humor, which is that sort of punk uh, ethic of like, and then um um, and then I wrote these down and I'm losing, I'm lost my notes. The second one, um, and the, the, was the one with the, um, the, the, the bad decisions, which I think is a great name for a band. Um, yeah. the, um, uh, suitcase man, uh, which I th think was like a more, it, it maybe a per maybe, maybe a little bit more personal, uh, or, you know, it seemed like it had a lot of like, kind of like, yeah, it was, it's extremely personal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the, the, the most recent one shoot the moon seemed to be like maybe a little more experimental, like musically, like it seemed to like, uh, would you think those are those fair assessments? <laughs> or, yeah, uh, I, I totally, th I think it's fair. I mean, I love what, what people, you know, I love looking at art and having my own opinion of it and the subjective nature of art in general is what excites me about, this being on the planet yeah you know so were I mean, these songs that you had been playing live for a while and and needed just to find a place to record them or were they songs or i mean I'll, clearly so many of the songs on 1918 were about covid so you know <laughs> or about, was a, yeah yeah go ahead i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no, no, no you're good I, I was just saying like so many of those ones i mean clearly were written like as a response to the pandemic and it's and 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 again like uh just don't fuck don't fuck with my mommy you know like like that like that 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 uh sense of uh, that in that song like it comes kind of out of nowhere for me i was like oh that's hilarious but also yeah don't seriously like uh, it's you're talking directly to the disease in the thing i was talking to the virus because you know that like that song <clears throat> back in november uh you know places in texas you know red states were good for one thing for letting us play music and be guinea pigs and try not to get sick. 
and um, in Austin, there, there, there was an outdoor venue that was doing shows. So uh, that band I was telling you about earlier, the Iceman Special and my band, we did a show in Austin. We did a show in Houston, both outdoor shows. We felt yeah. good about it. Everyone was being cool. And, you know, like in Austin, they wouldn't even let you dance. Uh, if you got, if you stood up from your table in your little pot of people, they would throw you out. They were just like, you got one morning and then they would throw you out. So my mom was sitting right up front. She's in her seventies, pushing the, you know, she's about 77 or 78 these days. I think, yeah, she just turned 78 and people were coming up and hugging her. And I had already recorded the music to that one, to that song, but I didn't have a lyrical concept. So like after that weekend, I got home because I remember like at the gig, I was like, hey, don't hug Vera. Don't touch my mommy. And it was like, <laughs> it's like me assuming that all the people in the crowd, you know, like these 23 year old asymptomatic people might actually be giving my mom the virus. So right. there's the virus because we're all composed of viruses. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Viruses are part of the human experience, but don't you give my mom that virus. If you kill her, I'm going to kill you. You know, just like <laughs> killing my inner Mr. Bungle or whatever. And like that song, I wrote the music to it, like in the first month of the pandemic, because what I was doing was like just sitting around writing a bunch of music. Most of the songs started out on my garage band. That's what I write with in my laptop and that one just the whole form i improvised i was just like i'm gonna do like a frank zappa meets like you know the rock riff dun, 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 you know like into a cumbia because i i used to live in east dallas in, in texas back in the late 80s early 90s uh, and this cumbia is this you know i don't know if you know the music but it's just like this tejano tex-mex uh yeah. you know there's many forms of cumbia, but I heard a lot of it. It was just sort of the soundtrack of my existence. And that was also when I was devouring copious amounts of drugs. So just, it was just like this weird soundtrack to my little William S. Burroughs moment of my life. And I was also playing in a band that did a lot of cumbias. And the, uh, the singer in the band, Bubba Hernandez, was like, on the first gig I played with him, I was like, well, I don't know what cumbias are. And he's like, man, here's the beat you play and play it like you're on lots of tequila. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, sounds good to me. But I really started getting into that. And then down the road in my music, I just started mixing it up with rock and roll and punk rock. And so, you know, that song just came out. You know, I had my timpani next to the drum set. I just recorded everything first on the drums. And I started putting music to it. And then about June, I, I had done a lot of those songs that way, like in the first month of, or in March and April and May of the pandemic, the first few months, okay? That big writing process, though, had started with some of these songs in December of 2009, yeah, 2019. Yeah. I had three weeks off before I went on this giant MDB tour that brought me to the one stop. And then yeah. Jan January called, came by and sat in with us. Yeah. And um, I was there. That was one yeah. of the, one February. of the concerts that I went yeah. to before the, before everything shut down. Yeah. 
so like I wrote like eight of or nine of those songs. I, I was like, I had a big outburst of songwriting um, and I was really excited about it. And then did this giant two month tour that, I, that literally I crisscrossed the country three times. Yeah, and, and it was suitcase like, man, I, I think you played that before. Was Suitcase Man one of, in that group? No, Suitcase Man, I wrote um, that too was written during the pandemic. Or it was okay. like sat, okay. got at home. Um, trying to think, like, uh, did any of those songs that I play? You know, um, the first song on Shoot the Moon we were playing. We I wrote that the summer before. Okay. Cause I got a bunch of keyboards. I'm sitting around messing with weird mook sounds and whatnot. And, and, um, that song was written in the summer. So we played driving down the road at the one stop, but yeah, most of those songs were just sort of sitting around and incubating. And it was crazy how my tour two month tour ended and then they shut down. Yeah. Everything got shut down. I actually caught two of your shows. I think you might have played like a double bill with Dr. Bacon in Raleigh on like a Saturday or, a, or for like a Friday night. And then like, I, then you came to, to Asheville and I caught you the next night in Asheville. So like I got two of those shows like right in a row. So I, you did. I, I kind of like went on tour with you for shortly because I, I was in Raleigh for some work. And um, I, I, you were talking about Cumbia. So just very short story. I also grew up in Texas and uh, one of my good friends growing up, Barbara Valle, uh, Barbara Valley, as we called her in, uh, you know, uh, white ass, uh, panhandle of Texas. Uh, what part of Texas? The, pan the panhandle. The panhandle. Oh, you grew up in the panhandle far yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, she had her quinceanera and she invited me and a few of our friends, uh, to be in the quinceanera with her. And they taught us to dance to cumbia really poorly. Like, I mean, that's, I think <laughs> we tried our best, but it was like a traditional like dance that we, that we had to like do as a being a part of it. Uh, so that was when I, where my first experience with cumbia, but I also growing up in the panhandle got a huge dose of Bob Wills. And, and I was surprised to find uh, Bob Wills, uh, the ro roly poly uh, on your album as well. Uh, tell me a little bit about your inspiration to do a Bob Wills cover. Well, uh, I too love Bob Wills. I mean, my grandfather driving around Texas in the late sixties, early seventies with him. I remember he listened to Bob Wills. And as I got older, I remember having that period where this isn't rock and roll. This isn't cool. Uh, put on some rush. And he'd just be like, that sucks. You know, um, <laughs> you're going to listen to Merle Haggard and Bob Wills, you know? So I'm really glad that I got to listen to really good country music. Cause yeah. as we know, there's a lot of bad country and Western music, <laughs> sure. but, um, you know, he also, and my dad loved Willie Nelson and, and you know, the good stuff. Yeah. So it's always been, that's another thing about growing up in Texas, that um, outlaw country or whatever you want to call it. But to me, Bob Wills is just like sort of the bridge between black American music and, you know, like those guys were checking out, like Jimmy Rogers too. I've heard those documentaries about sure. where at the end of the night after everyone played their club, gigs they would be going out and seeing the bebop musicians and and that music was really important to them so i mean i i just 
I absolutely love Bob Wills. I, I've had, you know, I don't like to do, I did an Elliot Smith tribute because I love Elliot Smith and his songs and it really worked well on, on vibraphone. Uh -huh. But, but the other tribute I would love to do one day would be like a Bob Wills tribute of yeah. some kind, yeah. but with the vibraphone yeah. and I'm probably giving away my thought to someone. So if someone else gets around to it before I do fine, but I got a whole concept for it. Nice. I just got to pull it, pull it off. That's awesome. And, and I, and I will say it involves, um, a new Orleans musical tradition. So one of these okay. days I'm going to get around to doing it. That's all I'm going to say about it. But I love Bob Wills. I mean, that music is just, I mean, the playing on it, the feel, the swing, it's incredible. Now, of course, my version of it, I almost felt like it was sacrilegious. Well, no. Because I did it really slow, you know, in this different, because we had actually been covering Bob Wills with Brooks, the guitar player, tours with me and Punkadelic. He loved, and we do a real fast punk rock sort of. Uh -huh. Roly poly, eating corn and taters, hungry every minute of the day, you know. And and to me, it just it worked in my sort of the way I sing like a fucking pirate. And <laughs> so, but and it's you know, a funny song too. I mean, it is a it funny is a song. funny song. Yeah, it yeah. is a funny song, you yeah. know. Yeah. So, um, it and was it's sort about of devouring, which is good for our podcast. It's about yes, it's about devouring. <laughs> And it, it was the comedy on that record. Yeah. You know, every record, even an introspective song about being on the road for 30 years and making all these bad decisions, which is what that record was about, needs a little brevity and a little yeah. lightness. So, uh, going to jump in and talk about you featuring on a piece of music. Not necessarily devouring just now, but my big go to pocket of music is. Uh, M.I.A., Santigol, and Leaky Lee. I just, mm -hmm. something about that sound is what I find, like, I need that. I need that sort of rhythmic, melodic anger of those, you know. Um, but you uh, appear on, on the Santigol track, um, and what I think is one of the, just the most solid albums ever uh, on the Say Aha track. And how'd you find yourself playing with Santigol? Well, that's a funny story, because... I have a cousin, um, you know, he's one of those cousins that his, his mom's sister married, is that right? Or either his mom's brother, no, his, his dad's sister married my mom's brother. So I grew up around him all the time. He was like, 10 years younger than me, he would come to see my punk rock bands. He would come to shows. I was sort of the black sheep in my family and he was <laughs> sort of the black sheep in his family. And one, you know, I would go up to New York cause he, I'd heard he had gone to like recording school and he was living in New York. And we started, I would go hang out and, you know, he lived in Williamsburg when it was still like, you'd get mugged when you'd walk around. And, um, I remember staying with him out there. And one day I was like, so what are you doing today? We had played like the Bowery Ballroom or something. This was like early 2000s. I now you're checking like, my time. I was in New York at that time. So. Yeah. So, you know, you know what, what Williamsburg was like. It was yeah. starting to become what it is, but it was still a little edgy. Um, 
And I said, hey, what are you doing today? Thanks for letting me crash here last night, pal. He's like, oh, yeah, you're welcome. I got to go remix the Janet Jackson record. I was like, what? You're my little fuck-up cousin. What? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then he's like, yeah, I've been working at Sony Studios. So he started working at Sony Studios. But he was also playing hardcore bass in Dr. Israel, which was like this hardcore sort of reggae, you know, reggae band um, that plays some hardcore stuff too, I guess. I didn't really ever check out Dr. Israel. <laughs> but I was playing with Claypool there like two years later, doing one of those Frog Brigade tours. And literally right before the sound check, he's like, hey man, uh, I'm producing this record over at Water Music. And Water Music is a killer studio that's legendary. You know, Sonic Youth recorded a lot of records there. Yola Tango, all these bands recorded there. I was like, oh, cool, you're Water Music. So I went over and I was like, well, all my stuff's on stage, but I can bring over a few bots, a hand, probably like Whole Foods bags full of percussion on, this, <laughs> you know, on the subway and took the path and went over there. And literally between sound check and when our gig was, I played on that Santi Gold like three or four tracks and, and didn't really think nothing of it. I was like, oh, this is cool stuff though. You know, this is really awesome. He's like, yeah, Santi and I are good friends and she's really, she's like my big sister or something. And, but, but literally I didn't, I was just like, oh, this is some cool New York band that he's working on. All right, cool. See you later, pal. Come to the gig if you have a chance. He's like, oh, I'm gonna be working late, probably not gonna make it. <laughs> So I fast forward years later, I heard he was doing really good and all this stuff. And I hadn't really thought about the Santi Gold records. And then my friend, Allison Miller, who played drums with Ani DeFranco when I was touring with her, was freaking out about this record that you're talking about like every day. She's like, this is such a great record. I love this record. I go, what's it called again? And I'm like, oh wow, I think I played on that record. And then I looked it up and they spelled my name wrong. They spelled it like M-I-K-E-Y-L-A-N. And I called John, my cousin, John Hill. I go, hey, bro, uh, y'all spelled my name wrong on the record. I'm not in a boy band. Yeah. Uh, he goes, oh, man, that sucks. And he goes, did I ever pay you for that? And I go, no. <laughs> so... The next time I saw him in LA, he was like, by that time he had moved to Los Feliz and he was in the studio where Elliot Smith recorded EXO and you know, a lot of great records were done there as well. So I'm like playing uh, Independence Day on this Wurlitzer there. And then the, the guy who owned the studio goes, oh, you like Elliot Smith? Elliot recorded that song on that instrument. I'm like, wow. oh my God, you know, a little fanboy moment. But yeah, so anyway, he was like, well, uh, the record company will probably never pay you. Let's go to my ATM. I'll pay you some money for playing on that song <laughs> to go record. So I finally got paid for it. But That's awesome. Yeah. I, I got a question. Yeah, thank, thanks for everybody who appeared on that album. It's just outstanding. It's a great record. And you know, and the, the drummer Chuck Treese, who did a lot of stuff on that record, I knew him from being a pro skateboarder and he and John worked together a lot and, and Chuck would come out and see Les and, you know, Chuck played in the Bad Brains for a minute. So, you know, it was just awesome to get to meet Chuck and be friends with him over the years. So, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and then John got to me to play on another, like, he was doing a single a few years later. So every now and then my cousin, like, gets me, if I'm around, to play on the records he's producing. But, you know, he's he's gone on to do a lot of great things. And it all started with that first record, that Santiago record. It's put him on the, you know, put him on the map. He's since it's written, like, he wrote that hit for Portugal, The Man, that came out a few years ago. He's produced several of their records. and Yeah. You know all kinds of stuff so i'm real proud of him uh, another theme that comes up in especially the the well all of the records but but really like in the in the these last um uh these last songs um you know in particular like in shoot shoot the moon you've got kool-aid man you're a political guy i mean you have some political thoughts you have some thoughts about the na the nature of uh of things kool-aid of course kool-aid spelled with a q and uh, that's one of the things that I've been really watching. I'm not done with it yet, so no spoilers in case either of you have finished uh, the series. But there's a, a new series on HBO Max about Q into the storm, kind of figuring out what, who Q is and how that movement like kind of like metastasized. And, um, and then I also heard some stuff this week about just how much more quickly, um, uh, especially on the Internet, uh, false news or or falsehoods like travel so much faster than like than sort of like the retractions or the corrections mm -hmm. of misinformation and i just wondered like you know kind of like the rest of us i think one of the things that we all were devouring whether we wanted it or not was a lot of a lot of news that we had to like kind of like go you know overcome you know, it's like it's because we were force fed a lot of this information that's like, no, you can't take bleach for the virus. No, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. No, like, you know, had to like overcome so much of this sort of false narrative that was being pushed by a, a racist and um, and, you know, right wing agenda. You know, where did you get your political you know, start? Was it at UNT? Was it was it before that? Was it in? And maybe you could speak a little bit about the politics that make their way into the, the most record, recent records. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely got interested in politics when Reagan was in office, mm -hmm. you know, at being in North Texas, the last few years of his second term. I, I remember the band I was playing with, you know, just being that 20 year old guy hanging out with guys older than me, smoking weed and hearing them talk about what the Sandinistas and, and the, the Contra, you know, and just having my whole political mind blown open, you know, I back and, and just at, that was like, for me, the start of it, and, you know, listening to the dead Kennedys mm. and, and then discovering the Minutemen. I mean, the bands, you know, it just to, to me seemed like that was part of the deal with music. Like, and yeah. then of course, I bought that first Public Enemy record, Yo Bum Rush the Show, and hearing Chuck D drop it, you know, I mean, you know, that was a good thing. That's the good thing about being 55. I mean, I got to hear a lot of good music when it was happening. Same, same with you, Tom. You know, and just to me, it always seemed like that was part of our job as a musician is to at least be getting pissed off, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, about it. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Kool-Aid Man, for me, I remember, you know, my, my friend Norwood Fisher, who, who plays with Punkadelics quite a bit as well these days, he, if y'all don't know who Norwood is, he's the bass player for Fishbone. 
but he's a very intense, smart, uh, politically uh, free-thinking individual. And so a lot of times in the van, we sit around and talk about these issues. And, and I would love to start a podcast and, and, and have it be like, sort of like, and that's what I love about this. It's sort of like being in the van, like you're driving and you just have, you listen to a lot of music, but then you also talk about a lot of ideas. So Norwood called me a few months into the pandemic and I had that line in my head going pro-life, pro-God, American Nazi, what a facade. It's almost like, you know, you know, in a holiday Cambodia, Pol Pot, Pol Pot. That was sort of like what I was going for there. Okay. But he and I really, and this was like a few days before the George Floyd thing happened. And he was really getting disturbed about seeing like all these white dudes with guns and shaved heads, you know, storming capitals and nothing happening to them. Yeah. And, you know, and just the whole thing. We've just been talking about the, the, the Q movement and mm-hmm. all those things. So, you know, for me, that Kool-Aid man wasn't just about the Q movement. It's just right. about sort of that mindset of like, oh, I'm a white guy and I'm ha- I'm poor me and I'm having all my rights taken away from me. It's like, what, your right to fucking be a supremacist and just... Yeah hold your fucking knee down on anyone who's not like you. Yeah. And so, and then sure enough, shit started exploding. And then as we all saw what happened with the insurrection, I mean, yeah, that that's literally insane. The Confederate flags and dudes with Nazi symbols yeah. were in the U S Capitol. Yeah. Screaming for freedom. Yeah, and and I, I mean not to recommend, I but I will recommend. I think it's a good um, uh, take on you know where did the the how did the platform of four uh, chan then eight chan then eight coon like become this thing that allowed an out was an outlet for this thing called Q and how did it kind of get co opted by uh, by really a, a psyops activity on by uh by a a very desperate man who's trying to maintain his power um over the course of especially like 2020 during the election and so i highly recommend the it's called into the storm uh q yeah so yeah take just take a look at it when you get i've been planning on checking it out if the tour ever slows down for you uh i would i highly recommend it and I love the idea for your, for your podcast. It's sort of a version of uh, comedians and cars getting coffee. So it's like yeah. musicians in the van unloading shit. <laughs> Which has yeah, I, I, I need to do it. And um, yeah, it's just sort of terrifying because we all saw the dog whistles that were happening with Trump. Yeah. And how he was legitimizing these things that have in most of my lifetime, you had the Southern Poverty Law Center and, and organizations like that being like, no, they can say what they say, you know, First Amendment or whatever, but they are fucked up and they're doing, you know, their yeah, their agenda. I mean, I still haven't seen any of these leftist groups, whether it's Antifa or whatever, I have not seen 
any left-wing person in this country that I know of, maybe it's happened a time or two, but bomb an entire building that kills, yeah. you know. Well, I remember what happened with at the Alfred P. Murrah building. I was playing Oklahoma City literally a week after that and talking to my friends who were first responders that were at our shows and just literally hearing the horror of them talking about pulling bodies out of fucking the rubble and you know yeah well and and between that and then also like just the harm of things like standard ground laws where it's like no you don't have to behave rationally like a person who like is experiencing uh in, instead in response to your fear you can stand there and shoot someone you know like like and what in what world is that a rational law that's like no yes you have the right because you feel scared to take someone else's life like i mean it, we, it's it's one of the most un it's just you know but it's but it's the it's the world that we're living in right now and so yeah i think that you know as artists you have a responsibility to point out the ridiculousness of it. And, uh, and so thank you for that. And <laughs> you know, keep it up. Yeah. But, I, but I did want to like kind of explore that with you because it is definitely a, a motif in, in your music. Um, you know, and, and another place I wanted to ask is Amber, Amber, um, my, my dear, uh, uh, significant other is, uh, wanted me to ask like, where did the vibraphone start with you? Like, cause, like, when, like, when did you, was it high school band? Did you were you a band guy, a band geek in high school? Yeah, totally. It, you know, middle so, school and stuff. Yeah, that yeah. was totally, totally it. I mean, I was in the Houston Youth Symphony playing Stravinsky and Debussy, and my junior and senior year in high school, and I wanted to go to North Texas. I, I try, gave sports a try. I played probably sports. the best music school in Texas. Honestly, like I mean, people don't know. It's kind of a, a kind of a like. I mean, if you're from Texas, you kind of know. But University of North Texas has put out a lot of great musicians. A lot of great musicians. And like like with any other good college, there's always also the stuff on the periphery that happens, you know, that maybe isn't connected directly to the music school, but because you're in high school and you got to go to college, you end up in these places. And that to me is what's really important is the fertile ground for creativity. My friends in Snarky Puppy, look what they've created. Yep. You know, there's always been great bands in Denton, but seeing Snarky Puppy get on the road and take instrumental music and be selling out Royal Albert Hall in, in England or, uh, you know, the giant venue, the Fillmore in San Francisco or whatever, you know, I'm just so proud to see like Denton musicians doing that. Sure. Uh, how has the business changed for you over the years? I mean, you're still putting out albums, but I mean, do you consider things like the algorithms or something like, or is it, you know, because like Spotify wants to send me down the road of, of uh, like, you know, new jazz when I'm listening to you, I'm like, well, yeah, I can see that. But like, uh, you know, but, but yeah. I'm pretty sure like, like Mike, Mike may fit into like, a, a like I, I would have expected you to be like, you know, when I like, like along with Ween and, and other, you know, <laughs> you know, bands that are, are uh, fishbone, like, you know, b- bands that have these uh, more alternative, I guess, uh, uh, statements to make than, than jazz, but, you know, but definitely there's jazz in there. Um, well, the, the, the problem is my, I, I've been, they use, they've used that word to describe my sound. And like Johnny Badakovich, the great New Orleans drummer says, it's whatever you 
dude, don't use the word jazz in your bio. <laughs> no women will come to see you play. There'll be five people at your fucking gig, and, and, and don't use that word. And then my, you know, my Nicholas Payton has a whole other thing to say about you know. And, and really, I, I I agree with Nicholas Payton. I think jazz. Yeah, you know, it's a great art form, but it really should be called Black American music. Okay, and that that that's hit what he hashtag Bam. That's what he's been talking about for a while. And at first, I was like, oh man, why why is he trying to like you know, you know, make it about color? No, he's not making it about color. He's making it about the culture. We all play Latin American music. We play Afro Cuban music. We play African music. When you play Fela, he's just uh -huh. saying. Let's yeah. call it what it is, Black American music. And that yeah. also includes soul, R&B, rock and roll. You know, yeah. we're all indebted to Black American music. So, but as far as like the genre thing and the algorithm, yeah, it's really weird. Like, you know, even when I go around and play shows, you know, we'll have like some like uh, sort of instrumental fucking new jazz sounding band of a bunch of college professors opening for us. And I'm like, will be with the promoter. That's cool. I went to music school too, but have you listened to my music? Sounds more like Ween or yeah. it's, it's all over the place. It's not like fucking just instrumental. Yeah, I'll do a few of those tunes because I love it, but that's why I love Ween so much and I've yeah. loved them for 30 fucking years is they're a band that plays anything they want to and they do it well. Yeah. And, and they were in the cracks and they just became Ween, like the genre of Ween. Right. And what I'm trying to do, and I'm not trying, I'm doing it. I'm just the genre of Mike Dillon. I put, yeah. This is what I play. This is what I'm doing. I'm not appropriating anyone. This is just how I hear music and play it, you know. And, I, and so, some spacey stuff, too. Like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, you know, uh, Grateful Dead fan. I love Fish. Like, but, uh, but at the same time, like I, I heard on Shoot the Moon, like really kind of spacing out like and like making like a lot of room for just a lot of sound and different melodies playing on top of each other, different rhythms. And uh, like just saw like a, a lot of kind of like room to jam. Like it's like I, I'm very excited to see you tomorrow night. Let, uh, and just want to kind of reset again. We're with Mike Dillon. Mike Dillon's going to be playing tomorrow night at the one stop uh, on Wednesday uh, April 7th, uh, not at the one stop. I'm so sorry at one world brewing. Uh, that's what we normally uh, play the one stop, but we're, normally, keeping, yeah. <laughs> we're keeping it outdoors. That's what outdoors. So we're doing the one world brewing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we don't want to take too much of your time, but Tom, uh, I'm, we would do have a, just a few more uh, things. I hope we can just take a couple more minutes to come. I've got nowhere to go. My, 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 uh, Brian Haas, the great Rose player who's on tour with me, believe it or not, has his earplugs in and is still asleep. This is modern touring. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good teammate, bandmate there. Yeah. I told him I had a podcast to do at 9 a.m. Michael, I wanted to talk to you. So we had a, a guest on with us uh, a week or two ago, uh, Stephanie Morgan. She was part of a band called Stephanie Zid, now Pink Mercury. And she's a vocalist who we talked about. It's not just uh, how she sings beautiful voices, <coughs> kind of visceral experience of just loses herself. And you've got a similar thing. It's not just what you play, but how you play. You sort of have like a beast mode quality to you. And I just, is, is that at all uh, intentional? And sorry to drop in. Um, reminds me a little bit. Uh, did you know uh, uh, the late, great Reed Mullen from uh, Corrosion of Conformity? 
uh, one is just the greatest drummer, but same thing, just like so talented, but just also the visceral experience of watching someone just assault the drums lovingly, you know, um, that I, I just see that in you when I, what I've seen you play is just, it's just fun to watch you play. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it for me. And it was never intentional. It's just like from, I remember I was when my first experience at North Texas, I was playing like this Bach piece in front of 150 hypercritical percussion students and other music majors. And my left leg just started shaking uncontrollably with nerves before we started and the place is silent. And I just go, stop it and hit my leg. And the whole place bursted out with laughter. And that was when I was like 18. I was like, and then I went on to crush the Bach piece. And, you know, I, I, I figured out it or, I've always just sort of had a natural, my stage presence is me. It's never something. And yeah, when I play, I just love getting into it and being in the moment and just forgetting everything that, that, that's happening. I think that, you know, I used to go see Fela. I saw Fela. I saw King Sonny Ade a lot back in the eighties. And, and that was like, Fela was hyper political and talked politics for an hour before his show, literally. Like wow. out front talking at the Longhorn Ballroom, the same place the Sex Pistols played. You know, at that point, that was like 88 or whatever, I saw Fela. But it wasn't that much earlier the Sex Pistols had played there as well. But, you know, and then all of a sudden, once the music started, it was all dancing and no, you know, it was like, all right, we talked about the crap. Now let's just play and focus on the music and get in a trance. Same thing with King Sonny. You know, it was just, to me, and then seeing George Clinton and, and all the guys with the music just moves you. Um, yeah, I think there's something, you know, because it's a know, vibration, right? I don't know if I answered your question, but well, yes. you sure did. I, no, I mean, it's a vibration, but like when you think about it on sort of like the philosophical level, it's like you're, you know, uh, any musician is trying to take something that's kind of like in them and put it through it's like the most abstract of, of an art form to go i'm gonna take it through some other piece of material to help you understand something that's going on in, inside here you know and and uh and it, you know it requires i think a lot of physical energy to like get a lot of people <laughs> to, to like also go with it because and uh and it's something that i i like to uh try to, to emulate a little bit more in my own plan because you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm not a professional musician. And so I had to just concentrate so hard on just getting the sound to come out of my guitar, <laughs> you know, and I'm a natural singer, but like, but, but so a lot of times like that, you know, uh, I think it's the way that your focus goes in. Alex Bradley, who we talked about earlier, talks about like just playing with intention, uh, like just kind of like saying, okay, here's where kind of like what I want it to go and where I want it to go and what I want it to feel like. And hoping that somehow it translates, um, you know, when you when you put it out there. Yeah, you said it. Energy, intention, and I remember being when we started playing and gigging and getting lots of people to the show. It, it really was in the late eighties, early nineties. It was like, all right, we got to be energetic, not just like we got to really give it up. Because you know, I'd seen bad brains. You know, seeing bad brains was like a life changing experience because that was my first hardcore show. I had no idea what I was going to. Yeah, and this ties in. 
to Tom talking about, you know, read, you know, I mean, or when I talked to JP from Clutch, you know, it's like so many of us people that were playing music, when we saw the Bad Brains do what they do, yeah, it was a life-changing moment because I'd never seen anything that fierce and that energetic happen in my life. Yeah, I mean, and I saw Art Blakey play that same year. I saw Art Blakey play at the end of his life and then I saw the Bad Brains, you know, in 86. I was 21, I was a music school geek, and I was on the road to being like, I was like, well, they say you're not really gonna make it, so you should be a band director. You know, the life as a musician is hard, so be a band director. But the second I saw Bad Brains and HR do a like flip gainer into the crowd and the whole fucking place erupt and bodies flying everywhere, I was like, oh my God. This yeah. is insane. Yeah. And the guys were really playing, you know, like like watching Earl Hudson play the drum, that classic beat, like tuk -a -tuk -a -tuk -a -tuk -a -tuk, the pay to come beat. Yeah. You know, like like to me, like that kind of beat is just as important as the, the you know, the ride symbol pattern, you know, on, on a Miles Davis uh, record in 1960. I mean, yeah. there were just these moments in energy. And, and when that, that truth, it, it is a tribal shamanistic uh, experience like maybe that's the one thing that I think with the algorithm and, and the music and we we all being you know we are in the middle of the information revolution you know this is no different than the industrial revolution in the early 1900s you know in the 1900s it's what we're going through maybe we don't know it you know now that New York Times talked about it but Robert Anton Wilson said it in 1988 in Cosmic Trigger or Prometheus Rising he's like we're heading to the information revolution get ready for it you know it took 2000 years for information to double pretty soon it's going to be doubling every minute and and that's what's going on but i love it when bands still remember the shamanistic nature of playing and it's not just all abstract and ethereal i yeah. like both combinations but yes you know that's uh, it's very important to me but at the same time that's why and i've also been afraid not afraid to like just break it down to vibes and vocals and have my little just like see if i can bring the crowd in doing that because i play yeah. with a lot of singer songwriters like ricky lee or you know ani that just take the guitar and sing a song oh, yeah yeah you know and own I mean, it i my i got a chance to see ani up close um and and had heard her music kind of in college and and uh and stuff and um and uh my girlfriend was a was a fan of her music and i was like she'll she'll love this as a as a present i'll get some tickets and we got we got pretty close up to the front and and uh then i saw her actually play i was like oh that's just her like I had no idea there was just one guitar, you know, that one 12 string guitar making all of that sound uh, because she'd play so much rhythm on her guitar and, uh, and her fingers are flying all over the place. So there's all these little, like, um, you know, uh, just so many notes. <laughs> I think it's kind yeah, of, it's incredible. I was yeah. the same way. I heard like, yeah, I need a Franco this or that. And I met her and, she was dating and ended up marrying a friend of mine who's done I'd done a lot of records with and then I saw her play my I'd heard about her, but then when I saw her play, I was just like, Jesus, I'm gonna play with her. She doesn't need me. Yeah. She's just like fierce, you know, her whole hundred pound body of whatever she is, four <laughs> foot ten, just coming through that PA like like just 
you know, she she encapsulates what I'm talking about, that shamanic side. Yeah. It's not just all, you know. Great. Uh, you talked about, you know, choice of instrument, something I wanted to ask you about, which brings me to one last little thing. Uh, love living in uh, Asheville at this time of year because there'll be this this bush in your backyard that's just basically this basic bush. You're like, okay. And then all of a sudden, sometime in the middle of March, bam, it just totally flowers with this amazing kind of bright white, purple, pink, you know. And you're like, what? Where did that come from? Uh, my friend would call it, those are March bushes kind of thing. Uh, and then it's, oh, you're great. So it's going to be like this all the time. Nope. And about four weeks later, it just sort of goes back to being basic bush. So I love that we're in that time right now of like, that ugly little thing in the corner is now the most beautiful thing in the yard. Uh, so, <laughs> That's important. Thank you. Uh, to where you are, uh, so I know, I mean, you can play a variety of instruments. It, it makes sense that you would kind of focus on one or two to tour, but do you ever have the like, hey, I haven't played this in a while. Why don't I bring this back out and put it back into the rotation? Um, do you have your March Bush of, of, of instruments? Oh, big time. <laughs> You know, I mean, like, that's the great thing about being a percussionist. I have all these things. And I I need, I, I feel like the vibraphone in general has made me, like, focus on it so much. But, like, like the congas, just, like, my conga drums, you're like, oh, yeah. And, and that's what was so great about doing these three records and being in the studio for three months instead of like, you know, in this day and age, a lot of musicians, there's not a budget. So we, we have a week to make a record and then you got to go right back on tour to keep making money and surviving. But I was able to like, look around my whole entire arsenal of instruments and go, Oh, this song, this rec this song needs that March Bush, you know, That's and, awesome. and, and it was really cool. Just that was one thing I wanted to also mention about these records was that I started sending all these tracks to my friends around the country, um, rock, different rock guys, different great uh, instrumental musicians, and just be like, hey, we're making this record and there's no rules. Just sounds like maybe like Captain Beefheart kind of guitar would be cool. Do what meets nice. the butthole surfers. Do what you're hearing. Yeah. And they would send it back and you'd be like, oh my God, that's incredible. I never would have thought of that. And then yeah. you put it on the track. And that was a huge, there was a lot of collaboration on Shoot the Moon. That was another big thing. And that's maybe the experimental nature you're hearing yeah. of that record. And then the other thing I did talking about songwriting that I haven't done in ages was my wife and I were in you know, quarantine together and you can only watch so much Netflix or yeah. Uh, whatever so we she's a painter but she's also a great poet so i was like hey i got this little thing i'm working on the vibraphone and this little uh, lyric idea she looked at it, she goes oh that's so stupid male oriented crap here give it to me and then she'd rewrite it and i'd be yeah. like uh no that's fucking uh, left-wing righteous bullshit uh let's do this so we just like would and we found all these like little cool moments of songs together and I'm sort of making a joke about it, but it, it for me it really was good to to have someone else writing lyrics with me and, and, and all the spirit of collaboration. Yeah. That's like the main reason I like being in bands, you know. Yeah, is that you do collaborate, and that's something I've missed. Uh, you know, being in bands, it's democracy with usually one sort of tyrant that di dictates things, and I 
and that tyrant, I'll admit it. But um, there was a lot of collaboration on these records. 1918 was the record of all of them. And of course, Suitcase Man, Peregrine and I did, you know, that was like our thing that we wrote together. Yeah. And I did pretty much all the instruments on it. And then 1918 was, I spent a lot of time with drum machines and it almost has a more of electro thing. Mm-hmm. But now we've been playing a lot of that record on tour, a lot of 1918. Okay. We break, break up the show with a little bit of, of um, three or four songs from Suitcase Man, break it really down. That gives the show a nice flow. And then we top it off with some old songs and three or four songs from Shoot the Moon. And it's, to me, it makes me really happy that when I wrote these songs, and someone like this guy over here asleep, he's having a blast reinventing, reinventing them on the roads. And you're just like, wow, this really did come down from some higher place that I was just channeling yeah. because it's almost like I wrote it for him because he's, he's having a lot of fun. That's uh, awesome. Touring. Yeah, so it's translating live and, oh. and I'm really having fun touring with it. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to see the high high priest of the vibraphone uh, bring the shamanic vibe, uh, come out to One World Brewing tomorrow night, uh, and I'll be there. And uh, I can't wait to uh, to see you live again. Bring that. Just I mean, again, if if it's at all possible, and I'm anywhere in the near in the area, I'm going to go see Mike Dillon. And uh, thank you for all that you're you're bringing to the world. And thank you for joining us today and devouring with us. We really appreciate it. Nom, 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 nom. Yeah, thank you all for having such great questions and, and taking some time out to, like, check out what I do. And then I, I really love what y'all's concept is for a podcast and the, the what you're doing for the world, too. So thank you so much. This has Thanks, been a, a, a great time, a great way to wake up and get wired on coffee and rant. <laughs> I tour with a little cheap espresso machine in my in in, in uh thirty dollar Mr. Coffee espresso machine. And, it goes um, with you on the road, huh? Yeah, it goes with me everywhere. So, uh, the other key ingredient to making this stuff happen. <laughs> Excellent. So get caffeinated. Come see Mike Dillon tomorrow night. Yeah, and we'll see you out there at One World West. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, y'all. All right. Well, that was Mike Dillon, ladies and gentlemen. That was outstanding. Another good get there, Josh. I'm, um, I'm happy for you. I know that was uh, someone that, again, as I told him, you, you, you do not let anybody get by without letting them know you have the chance to see Mike, the Mike Dillon band. You <laughs> yeah. must do everything you can to take advantage of that. Yes, that's true, and that that is that is my take. But this isn't the time for my take. Uh, this is the time for Tom's take. So, Tom. Uh, I'm sure you've got a little tasty tidbit about of, uh, of Take a Two. Can you please take it away? Yes. Um, I will borrow from my other radio podcast persona. I do have a sports talk radio show. And say there was a um, pushback against participation trophies. There was a thing along the way that basically... Right. It was considered like, what are we all snowflakes? Everyone needs to get a participation trophy, you know, to play sports. No, it's about winning. You know, if you if you win, you get a trophy. You don't, you try, and that's that's good enough. And then, in, in general, I, I was like, I, I see what you go there, but um, 
The NCAA basketball tournament came to a completion last night. And I think anybody who has participated in sports this past year should get a participation trophy and have it be a badge of honor. Yeah, to have yeah. to go through what they had to go through, just knowing that any time you sort of, uh, you know, take your mask off to, uh, uh, while you're picking up take it, any risk like, oh, I, I could not only make it so that I can't play, but my team, my whole program, just have to carry that pressure through everything you do and I've mentioned that high school athletes play with masks on, running up and down the court, basketball games with masks on. So while participation trophies were seen as the sort of pat on the head, oh, good for you. Yeah, you put a uniform on. <laughs> yeah, big deal, kid, kind of thing. No, everyone should get a participation trophy because they put them through selves through a series of uh, hoops and hurdles just to do the thing that they love to do. And uh, that that should be celebrated. I think you're right. And I think that it also speaks to just how important and um, competition is. Like, I think as you get older, you forget sometimes like, you know, competing brings out, yes, it can bring out a dark side in people. And yes, it can bring out a predatory side in people. But for the most part, like for the most part, most people are good people who want to compete to see what, see what it brings out in them. You know, they want to, they want to make the most of, you know, that's why I didn't play football because I thought that I would be in the NFL someday. I played football because I really liked working together with another, with a group, being a part of a group that was all pushing towards a goal, recognizing that sometimes you have to put aside your own um, desires to do what's best for the team. Like all of those are lessons that sports bring, bring us. And I think it was important that a year didn't go by, especially on the amateur level. I mean, the truly amateur level with, uh, without, you know, people still having that as a part of their life. So I agree. Participation trophies. Let's, you know, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have to get you one, Tom. Yes, please. <laughs> and uh, we talked a little about dogs in uh, the, in our bit before with Mike and uh Dogs are a little bit of a theme in the song that I wrote this week. Uh, the theme that they put out there was dementia started setting in, and uh, and here's the song. It's nearly time to say so long, my friend. Dementia started setting in, my friend. Before the time is gone, I'll say, my friend, I'll miss you. The sun is up, the sun is yellow. All good dogs are feeling mellow. Scratch my back, be a good fellow. Smile and feel the wind blow. It's nearly time to say so long, my friend. Dementia started setting in, my friend. Before the time is gone, I'll say, my friend, I'll miss you. Now it's night and time to sleep.
I hear the patter of your feet. The nightcap strong, still I can't sleep. Just keep repeating. Josh, that was uh, that was lovely, and wow, a whistle track. Yeah, yeah, no idea. I <laughs> thought it was a, appropriate for a song about a dog. You know, you gotta throw a little dog. Outstanding. We, we also spoke of dog whistles in our <laughs> in our conversation with Mike, and so that made full circle. Uh, so yes, yeah, so thank you for listening. Uh, we've got some great guests coming up very soon with us. Uh, Peter Adamson from uh, the philosophy of uh, of the history of philosophy without any gaps podcast. We've also got Jessica Thomason coming up. So we're very, very excited. So sticker, make sure that you're uh, subscribed, listen to us, uh, share us with your friends and uh, we'll see you next time. Nom, 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 nom.